Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson for a very, very special episode of Startup Hustle. And why is it special, Matt? It's number 100, baby. Woo! Can you believe we made it to 100? When did we start this? The end of 2017? I don't know. When did we stop it? Never? Like the end of 2017, right? Yeah, it was, it was December 7th. 2017. All right. A year and a half, 100 episodes. Last time I checked, we've been listened to in 160 countries. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everybody who has listened to this for at least a minute. And today we have a very, very special guest. We do. For episode 100. We do. The who? man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Sandy Kemper is here. Hi, Sandy. I think you brought me on because I'm nearly 100 years old now. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, that's. I was, I was going to actually ask Matt. You know, I didn't realize you were turning 100, but you don't look a day over 93, Matt. Anyway, well, it's a function of the years you put in in tech companies, right? It's like dog years. Well, you're like so Yoda. Technically, I'm like 144. You're like Yoda. Yeah, 763. Right. <laughs> Does he bite my size? Do you? Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow, that actually sounded like we had Yoda really here. Well, Sandy, thank you again for coming in. Uh, you have a very storied history here in Kansas City. Um, we love to spotlight Kansas City, um, hopefully all over the world, and hopefully some people that listen around the world have actually looked up on a map to see where it is. But you have a pretty interesting company. I know you have a long history of being an entrepreneur. Um, let's talk about it. Well, I was a lucky adoption club. I got adopted into a family that was pretty successful in finance and uh, learned how to do that when I was a, a banker at UMB and became CEO of the bank and, and then decided that there were some things that needed to be done differently than what the corporations were doing or what large corporates were doing. So the most recent company was C2FO or is C2FO where we're going about finding ways for companies to get capital without any risk. So without the risk underwriting necessary in the banking world, we're able to move what's now almost um, pushing up to a quarter billion dollars a day of funding and dollars for corporations to be able to grow and have the capital they need to continue to grow. Wow. It's a lot. And one of the coolest things I saw on a talking about being on the map was a map of the cap, the companies that had raised the most capital Yeah, and C2FO is the most in Kansas. Yeah. But you're, right? but you're, you're on the record for saying the same thing I think, which is who cares about how much money you raise is about the valuation you create about the good I that you do. Pretty for cool, though. Well, I, well, I think you've, I think you've made a couple other headlines related to that too recently though. Which ones are those? Well, with valuations. Well, fine. But yeah. it, again, yeah. so it, yeah. valuations can be funky as well, right? Yeah. So but I'm, I'm firmly in Matt's book, which is, look, you want to celebrate as many things as you can. And, and we're not certainly taking away from any of the, of the points of celebration entrepreneurs should have. But how much money you raise should be relatively low on the list as time passes. I'm not going to disagree with that. I'm potentially that's how much money you wasted. I think we <laughs> It's coming, it's coming from a guy who's raised a hell of a lot less than I have. Thanks, yeah. Matt. That was nice. Uh, <laughs> take that one home. One of the things we talk about with a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs is, you know, is everyone gets so centric around the whole idea of cap cap raises yeah. and how important it is. And sometimes I just look at these folks and I say, you guys could also try to sell something. 
That's the best type of money you can raise comes from revenue, comes ah, from your customers. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Well, sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get those customers, so you've got to have a little bit of capital. Right, right. So, all right. So, to give, to give our listeners a little bit of background coming into this episode, obviously, we wanted to find someone that was doing something significant for episode 100, and uh, we did that. So, then last week, we saw you at the Kansas City Tech Council Tech uh, right, uh, right. CEO Retreat. And I had a brief moment with you and I said, Hey, you know what? I think it'd be more fun, a lot more fun to talk about things we didn't do well. Absolutely. And keep it real as we turn 100. And, uh, I, it was actually, you had just given a presentation or you were moderating. What's that? The VC panel? Yeah, the or was VC it, panel, exactly. Which by the way, I really enjoyed that. I thought that yeah, was great. Great, great guys and gals came in from all around the world. Yeah. Awesome. Really good group. Yeah, for sure. And you, you had made a statement about failure and don't, not to, you know, to basically it was something along the lines of, of wiping yourself of the fear. Yeah. I mean, it causes, it causes a lot of hesitation. I think remember Kansas city going back. I mean, for those who, who know the history of KC, you know, there was an extraordinary entrepreneurial town back in yeah. the day. Right. It uh, still, still is. Well, it, but, still is. but there was a period of time when we went away from that, where I think we became more concerned with preserving that, which we have versus risking a, a modicum more of what we have to go build something even better. So it happens generationally, I think, right? If you go back to Kansas City and you think about in the time when St. Joseph was larger than Kansas City, they didn't put the Hannibal Bridge over for the railroad. Why? Because the entrenched entities inside St. Joe didn't want that new technology. The ferry boat operation was running great. The train was just a sparky thing that scared the cows and burned the fields. So this little town of Kansas, which just the year before missed a referendum on being renamed Possum Trot. So this was the town of Kansas, wow. almost called Possum Trot. Says we're going to leverage everything. We're going to build the Hannibal Bridge, and that was the beginning of the end of St. Joseph and the beginning of the creation of Kansas City. All of the overland routes come out of Kansas City. All the railheads terminated here. All the cattle trails terminated here. This was an extraordinary entrepreneurial town. That success, however, bred a little bit of complacency. So there was a period of time when we didn't have the entrepreneurial chutzpah that we have now. Now I think we've generationally come back to it. And there's a tremendous amount of energy in our community. Well, and that was one of the things I highlighted at the CEO retreat was like Hyperloop. Like Hyperloop might start here. Yeah. That and be, that's pretty cool. That'd be outstanding. It's really cool. Yeah, That's, well, that's a, such an interesting concept. It's a pretty straight yeah. shot, right? Yeah. KC to St. Louis. Yeah. Is, it makes what, a lot what of they sense. Say? It's yeah. going to be like five bucks or 10 bucks to get on there and go. It'd be pretty extraordinary. Be really cool. Yeah. So failure, and let's hope the Hyperloop isn't on that list someday. It'll be a fast failure if it is. Yeah, really, literally. <laughs> Very fast. Literally. So when they, say fail, when they say fail fast, is that what they're talking about? Yeah, I think so. Just don't go into the wall fast, that's all. Oh, man. All right. So first of all, that was actually an interesting background. I didn't realize that St. Joe was once bigger than Kansas Considerably City. Considerably bigger. Yeah, it was, the, it was the, the capital of this area. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Take that, St. Joe. Well, I mean, we love, love, love St. Joe, but I mean, maybe generationally things are coming back there, but I mean, yeah, they were considerably larger than we. That's interesting. So, all right. We had started talking about some of the things you'd failed at. Now, I want to point out that Sandy is, after 100 shows, maybe the most well-prepared guest we've had, which I'm not sure what that says about our guests or the show. He actually has notes. He has a timeline and a roadmap, and he is ready to talk about the things that he hasn't done well, which by the way, I think is really great because I think it's really important for entrepreneurs of any level to understand that whether you've had a lot of success or you're getting to the point of success, 
there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of stuff we don't do well. I well, think it's refreshing absolutely. to know that that people at the top of the game, like Matt, how many things have you failed at? Couple? None. Okay. This is this is going to be sad for me then. It's not. Yeah. It's well, not. I'm not 100 years old yet. Well, that's a good point. That's I mean, a good point. Yeah. He's, he's sort of like Han Solo to my Yoda. Oh, <laughs> well, well I could have said Chewbacca, couldn't I? Yeah, you do look. Yeah, you're more like a Chewbacca, maybe. Right, my two year old nickname is Wookie. Oh, that's awesome, oh, man. Chewy. Okay, so your start as an entrepreneur involved a radio flyer red wagon. It did. It Let's, did. I was a uh, I was a shoe shine kid, and I'd take the the wagon out with me to the neighborhood, and I'd pick up shoes, and I'd bring the shoes back to the house. I'd work. I'd deal worked out with my parents. I said as long as I was occupying my hands and doing work, I was probably about seven or eight years old. I could watch TV. You know, it was the only time we could watch TV in the house. So I had to oh. be working. Otherwise, you had to be doing something else. So it had product market fit. It, failure, however, was a failure of compensation. I didn't pay my sister enough when she became my assistant. She, she walked out on me. <laughs> paying her a nickel a day. So was she I, your co-founder or your employee? She was employee number one. And she okay. demanded more compensation than a nickel a day. And, and you know, the margins were thin and, and I couldn't scale the operation. So it was a failure of compensation and a failure of scale. Okay. Number two, At however, nine. number two, and I'm learning as you as you think about this, and you think about failure as sort of the road signs along the, the your journey as a as a entrepreneur as a business person. You want to take the stuff that you you found out didn't work so well, and you want to make sure that you address it better next time. So the next one was when I went away to boarding school because my parents didn't really know what to do with me as a kid. <laughs> so they shipped me off to boarding school, which was actually an extraordinary experience. I loved it, but I had I had your hairline. When I was a sophomore in high school, so I ran the beer concession at boarding school. So I had great product market fit, right? It was imminently scalable, and we were paying ourselves a hell of a lot most of the time, just drinking the profits. Uh, but but by that time, I had realized that uh, you know there was no real vision and no nobility of cause. So those two businesses were early failures. The, the fast forward out to the first the first big thing I did after college was an education program. So it was at-risk education inside the Kansas City, Missouri School District. Great product market fit, great scale, had great nobility of cause, great compensation. Everything was working great. Failure there was failure of succession. That company did not succeed over time because the generations of leaders had to be sort of age 22 to 28 because that was that was the key point for mentors and for partners with the kids. So all of these things kind of teaching all of the failures that, that you've had, and I mean, look at look at Perfect Commerce, which was my first real big tech company startup after I left the bank. Someone gave me a $100 million valuation for a 17-page uh, vision deck that I created. So the failure there was ultimately a failure of humility. So we thought our didn't smell, right? We thought we were above everything. We got this great valuation. We went in full of of I went in full of hubris and and learned some very valuable lessons on what not to do in terms of how to manage people, how to lead, where to be humble, where to watch out for your ego. And, and we've tried to take all of those lessons, or I've tried to take those lessons myself and incorporate them into C2FO. But there's so many there's so many other learnings that come from failure that I think what we have to figure out in the end is how to desensitize ourselves to failure. How do we do it as a community? Right Inside ourselves, how do we do it? But how do we do it as a community so that People aren't afraid to take that leap. And in Kansas City, we're seeing more and more of that because more and more of our peers, more and more of your peers, my peers, are out there taking that leap. And there's the me too aspect of it and the freeing up of the, oh, I can do that because if I fail, it'll just be a learning. So the, the community has now been able to accept failure, which makes it easy for those, easier for those who want to take that jump 
to go ahead and do it because they're not going to be ostracized. When I first started Perfect Commerce, one of my dear friends who left before me to go do his great thing, left the big corporate mothership, went off to go do his thing, ended up failing, called me up because I'd given a comment like this on night. I suggested there should be a, a lecture series in Kansas City called the Failure Lecture Series, where everybody would come together and talk about the things that didn't work. He came out to see me about that, and I thought maybe, wow, he's going to talk about these lessons. And then said he was, now he just wanted to sell me an insurance policy because he'd gone back to the mothership. And he said he was embarrassed because of what he had gone through and he had failed his family. And that was not, that's not the mentality you need to have. And I don't think we have that mentality anymore in Kansas City. What do, you, what do you guys think drives the fear of failure in people in general or with entrepreneurs? I think part of it is just giving up. Like, uh, I have a friend that has a startup now and I don't think it's ever going to work, but I don't think it's going to take a long time for them to finally admit it. And I don't know why, but at some point in time, they need to learn like all the skill and the energy they have is probably best, you know, applied to some other business idea, not the one they're working on. Yeah. And it's trying to get them to eventually see like, I can't make this work. And whenever I'm around them, I'm kind of pushing them. I'm like, well, how are you going to accomplish X, Y, and Z and but don't, you want, don't you want them to have that tenacity? Don't you want them to be ferocious in their belief in what they can accomplish? Nobody starts off thinking it's not going to work, right? No, and that's what's great. But the but at some point in time, when do they figure out that all that tenacity is not going to overcome a business idea that doesn't work? What's more important, tenacity or curiosity to an entrepreneur? Tenacity. Hmm. I think it's the tenacity. Yeah. So I, I rated curiosity first because it, it drives your intellectual appetite for it. And if this person that, that Matt's talking about was a little bit more curious about what's maybe working or not working in the business, that might act as a, an ameliorating force to the tenacity of I'm just not going to give up. Well, you need to also be able to see that what you're doing has some potential. You have to, as you get into it, understand that the numbers may not be there. So do you think tenacity can lead to curiosity? Because I feel like when, yeah, I, when well, I hear tenacity, I'm thinking I'm going to try like anything and everything yeah. possibly available, sure. which is a form of curiosity. Well, tenacity yeah. leads to failure sometimes, right? Yeah. Tenacity is the ability to get back up after a failure and say, why did I get knocked down? Oh, I'm going to avoid that right uppercut next time. I'm going to sure. see that slippery sign on the road and go, I'm not going to go as fast. So yeah, I, for sure, tenacity can I, create curiosity. Sometimes it's painfully creating curiosity. Sometimes success is outlasting everyone else, though, and that's a form of tenacity, yeah. you know. And that's that's. I think that that's tough. Um, We're coming back to, to your point about success and about Kansas City. One of the things we, I think, to summarize all those points of failure in the history lesson of Kansas City, I think success is the grandfather or the grandmother of failure. Not not the father or the mother. It takes a generation to sort of see that happen, and then complacency gets bred in. As you end up having success, you begin to take grant, take for granted that which you have. Or get protective of not wanting to lose it. Sure. I mean, do you yeah. ever read Against the Gods by Bernstein? I have not. So there's a uh, the Bernoulli family, Italian mathematicians, Renaissance family. And the Bernoulli lift principle is the reason planes fly, the lift above a, an airplane wing. But Jacob Bernoulli said something that stuck with me ever since reading that book. The satisfaction derived from any additional increment of wealth is inversely proportionate to the amount of wealth you already have. So a little bit more of what you have matters not to you. So it's why your first dollar, your first success is so much more important than your millionth and first. So how do you create and maintain that tenacity, that curiosity, and that drive even when you've had success? Those are super hard things to achieve. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So Matt, you had, um, I mean, it's, we mentioned it in the intro of the podcast, you know, you've had a great exit with then solutions. Did that change you as an entrepreneur? Cause just, you know, basically, basically what Sandy like to really shorten that 
you it, you have you could have got it could have made you soft. Yeah, I, I could have. Yeah. And then certain and certain of our peers have already done that and split and no longer are no longer risking. Matt's sure. putting back in, making investments in Kansas City, starting up business after business yeah. again. So what what's in it? I guess the real question is without getting too self-serving is why are you different? Because most of most of the guys you and I know that they, they make their number and they're gone. I think for me it was never all about the money. Um, some of my business partners before their goal in life was to like ring the bell up on Wall Street and see their name in lights yeah. and all that stuff. And I'm just more of a problem solver, I guess. And so I enjoy the the challenge and the problem of it in business. Um, it it's not necessarily about the money, but I definitely agree with your your sermon earlier of like, you know, once you've made your first million dollars or whatever, then yeah. every dollar past that's not really as big of a deal anymore. It's just kind of like whatever. Um, and the thing I mentioned to you the other day when I saw you is like one of the things I, I take the most pride in is like really the number of jobs mm-hmm. I've helped create, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think I've helped create over a thousand jobs yeah, directly right. and indirectly. And that's a really cool feeling. Yeah, it is. Um, but, you know, probably the smartest thing I could have ever done was retire when I was 29. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, and, and that, that also marks the 100th time I've heard you say that. Yeah. For, without <laughs> a doubt. So. I'm a glutton for punishment <laughs> and stress, I guess. Um, yeah. But, 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 I, but Matt, so much of that is like, I'm the same way. It's this is, I'm wired to do this. Like, I don't know if I know how to do a whole lot else. Like, I don't know so what I do with myself. What's the longest I'm, you've been away without doing any work ever? Like, wait, without actually doing it or without wanting to get back to well, doing when you, it? That's my question. How long, how, <laughs> how cold turkey can you go in for how long? Um, as long as my wife will drag me away from it. But I'm usually thinking about it the whole time. And it's actually like, I mean, it's... it's, it's the same way. Yeah, but it's problematic. It actually causes problems in my life. Like I talk about that a lot. Like yeah. it's, it's an obsession thing. And yeah. where do you curb that? So and, I think I have gotten more balanced. Over the last few years, yeah. I've gotten more balanced and I can step away from work. You, you are actually quite balanced. You know, there, some people talk about that, like five o'clock rule, you know, five o'clock comes and you got to leave it at the office. Like yeah. I can't, Which, I, can't I thought that well. was five in the morning and that's yeah, when you yeah. have to wake up to get your butt to the office. Right? No, it's actually, that's when you stop work yeah. and you get a short nap <laughs> and then you do it again. Exactly. Yeah. You get, you get off from 5am to 6am. But, but you know, Matt, you are, you, I, I will, um, I will point that out. Matt's very, uh, very has a very keen ability to separate certain times. And I know that because while I'm obsessed, I'm usually trying to hit them up during this time. Well, I go, I go home questions. and I spend time with my kids, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, for a certain yeah. time at night, yeah. I go home, I have dinner, I play with my kids, I put them to bed. And sometimes after I put them to bed, I'll work a little bit. Yeah, same. But I've been buying my daughter books about commerce and business. So when I put her to bed and I read at night, I'm I'm also interested in it. It's one of my favorite things to do when they were growing up. And it sounds like my kids are a little bit older than yours, but we would go in a restaurant and I'd say, so are they going to make money tonight or not? Yeah. What's their staff? What's the cost? What's the overhead? How many people are eating? How many people have a wine bottle on the table? You know, they make more money on booze than they do food. So run the numbers. I need to, I need to step Dylan's game up a little bit. My, my How old four, is he? My, well, I have a daughter. daughter. She's four. And if you ask her uh, what every business needs, she'll say customers. Excellent. And you say what do customers do? And she'll say buy things. Perfect. And you say with what? And she'll say money. And we done. Bring her over. I've got got an opening right now. I I, I get it. Intern program right now. Matt tried to hire her already, so now we have two. Now we can get an auction going. I I told her to hold out. I said, "Look, you're not going to get a good price if you've only got one buyer." So she's going to be my VP of sales. Yeah. Well, the sad thing was, is I uh, the moment that she 
said that, I realized that she might know more about business than a lot of adults I've met. It it scares me. So you come back to what Matt said about job creation. I think that's, that was the thing when I was at the bank, when we had 5,000 folks and and thinking about the responsibility for making the right decisions for families that would have been, you know, 15,000 with kids. And one of the metrics we think about at C2FO, and I do think these are the these are the things that if you get it right early on, if you get the right goals, you get your true north for your corporation established, you probably won't deviate much. So for us, it's always been the customer is is the supplier, the individual or the entity to whom we are making capital available at a low cost, low risk rate. And because of that, because we've created that flow of capital to them, to Matt's point, the thing I'm most proud about is this year the government, well, I should say in 2018, the government said, given those flows of capital, you, C2FO, created over 100,000 jobs in the United States. Wow. Whoa. it's a lot. Well, think about full that, scale, right? How, how often do we sit around sometimes and complain about people not paying us? Sure. <laughs> right? Once in yeah. a while, right? Yeah. And so if we could finance those, we might be able to get that money and hire somebody faster, right? right? And, but, and we're at a little scale. We're not like well, but you're, Walmart you're, you're, or somebody or like some giant corporation that's got billions of dollars of payables. But you also have the capacity to borrow. So a lot of yeah. companies don't. And because they're curtailed that availability of capital, they can't hire the next yeah. person because they've got working capital tying up the source of funds or use of funds. So they just can't, they can't hire the next person because they've, they've got to wait. So speeding that up creates more job creation. And that that one thing is the thing that I think our company is most And that makes of. total sense because I, mean, I don't know if you want to share who some of your customers are, but some of them are like huge Fortune 500 customers. Yeah, right? so we have uh, we have $2 trillion in the marketplace today. That's crazy. And they're, they're meaning we're matching accounts receivable and accounts payable. So a large corporation like a Costco or um, you know, an Amazon or something like that or on the industrial side, it might be somebody like an oil company like Exxon or otherwise would send us their accounts payable every night. And then we take those accounts payable and, and make them available to the accounts receivable side of the equation, allowing those suppliers to see that they're going to get paid in 30 or 45 days. Would they like to, would they like to pay, receive payments sooner? And so if so, then put a discount in or put an APR in that you name supplier, name your price for the capital you want and see if your buyer will take it. And we're matching about 85, 90% of the trades every day. Um, so you know, amazing. we were just talking about getting soft. I realized we've been soft because we've been talking about a third comma and Sandy shows up with a fourth. I know. Right. I mean, for real, like, gosh, who brought this guy? <laughs> Four comma club right here. God, I know. I just I wanted just, the I've, third comma, but now dude, I realize that there's so much more to go with. Like now, you said, you know, I've been compounding for longer than you, right? A hundred years of compounding, you get that fourth comma. The, the underlying thing that both of you just talked about was making a difference. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about jobs. It was really about making a difference. Like where is your company making a difference? You're making a difference in the lives of the people that work with you. We were having a conversation about that this morning about, um, well, this was also a takeaway from the CEO retreat. Um, they were, um, whoever the, the psychology guy was, I gosh, I can't remember. He was oh, talking the, the Forrester guy. Was yeah, Forrester, Forrester. But he was talking about yeah, a purpose-driven yeah. employee yeah, yeah, yeah. and being client-obsessed. And I kind of, I took some notes from that and I took it down. I said, you know, we need to do a better job of explaining to our employees the difference that they're making with what they're doing. Like you don't just come in at six o'clock tonight to be a site reliability engineer. You actually do that. So I'm referring to some, someone Mm -hmm. in our office in the Philippines that uh, comes in at when the Stackify office closes here, but that person exists to create more so to create a, a, to remove the insanity mm-hmm. 
so the people can leave their job here at five o'clock and not oh, yeah. get a call yeah. Yeah. from at nine o'clock at night saying, hey, you know, yep. a server restarted and this blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you're going to have to leave your kid's dance recital because of this and like, or something, you know. So and, is it, is it 13 hours? What's the time delta? 13. 13, yeah. it, it, 13 or 14. Yeah, so when we yeah. close our office at 5 p.m., they're coming 6 a.m. there. Yeah. That's awesome. But I felt that it was important. Like you talk about making a difference and you feel better about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And, and knowing that you're helping provide someone else with opportunity or happiness or just any of that, I think is meaningful. And can you think of a better podium upon which to stand? If, if you have a desire to go create something different, to do something, to put it as Steve Jobs famously said, it in the universe, you're going to go into politics given, given the, the morass that that is, you're going to, what what's better as a as a vehicle a podium a megaphone than building your own business yeah. right as long as as long as you're doing the right thing i suppose if you're not doing the right thing you can still be a negative megaphone but for me it's always been do the right thing build the business use it as a podium to go ahead and increase the the scale of your impact through the team that you assemble in that business so i got a question for you sandy so your family uh works in the banking industry right right so would you say that C2FO in some ways kind of puts the banking industry a little bit out of business in a small aspect? Yeah, well, it's not something we talk about very much at the Thanksgiving table. But <laughs> I mean, it takes away some of their business, right? Or it, it serves it serves a part of the business that they didn't serve, That's probably. Right. I'm sure they're not listening, so I can give you the, the, the full rundown. The, well, you know, hey, hey, come on. I, they're well, all listening. They're bankers. Right? Yeah. I mean, they remember, they're bankers. Yeah. They're very busy. What else do they have to do? That's, oh, way, yeah. that's a different opinion there. Uh, so in many, in many ways, you're right. Uh, but fundamentally, this may be a little bit too inside baseball, but banks don't want to do working capital lending. It's a lot of accounts receivable, inventory management. It's like a 30-day loan, potentially, right? Well, yeah, but, but you also, are you in compliance with your AR? Are you out of compliance with your inventory? How much how much uh, management do I have to put in? Now, compare that to making a commercial real estate loan or a commercial term loan, right? There it is. There's your equipment. There's your piece of business. There's your, your, your office. That's what you loaned on. There's no compliance relative to accounts receivable. Are they up? Are they down? Are they aging out? There's no compliance relative to watching inventory. So working capital lending is a high cost, high management, um, usually relatively low yielding asset for banks. So actually, as you probably know, working capital lending in the United States has not come back to the levels it was before the 2007 crisis. So we're just not seeing that. And it's not a reason for that. It's not because we're there. It's simply because the, the, it's, it's not that profitable a business for the Mm -hmm. banks. And and by the way, there's some unintended consequences when the banks were put under more regulatory burden, right? They had to create more risk capital. Well, it turns out that working capital lending is seen by the government as being very risky, right? Because you've got to manage, you've got to figure out is the AR in compliance, is it aging out? What's happening? How ephemeral are my assets? Whereas when it's a commercial loan on a commercial business, there's your office, there's your equipment. It's not ephemeral. Right. So in this case, the government has made it more difficult for banks to be the engine of economic creativity that they were because the banks might have gone too far, usually on the mortgage side of the equation in 2007, 2008. But those very regulatory burdens now put in place to curtail the banks from being stupid are actually causing the banks to not lend money to businesses that need to grow their job, uh, their, their job creation, grow their business. What I love is that in some sense, your business kind of is very much a niche, right? Yeah, it's sure. sort of a niche in for the banking sure. industry. Happily That's a big giant ones. niche yeah, exactly. that nobody would think about. But yeah. it, it's a, it's it's the banks don't want to serve or it's underserved, and you're able to optimize around that one thing. Absolutely. 
and, and just kill it. And that's what you want as an entrepreneur. You want to yeah. find you want to find that thing that hopefully you're passionate about, right? And make sure there's that silly product market fit we talked about. But if you're not passionate about it, if you're not figuring out that this thing gets you up in the morning, right? The fact that you can go out there and do something that no one's done. Ideally, you want it to be a big market, but for you know, for those folks who are listening to your show, as long as it's something that moves you, mm-hmm. right? And you, it, it doesn't have to be a, a trillion-dollar market. It doesn't have to be a billion-dollar market. It has to be a market that satisfies you for what you want to build. So would you rather have an entrepreneur or a founder that has tenacity or passion? Uh, passion for me is is third or fourth on the list. So right, this, is a, this is actually a commonly asked question for job interviews and early uh, – early acquisition of talent for our companies, rate these words relative to the marks of entrepreneurs. It is curiosity, tenacity, uh, compassion, passion, and intellect. Or empathy, if you want to just use a different word. So where would you rank those? So for me, it's, it's always been curiosity and tenacity. Where would you put empathy? Where would you put intellect? Would you rate intellect above curiosity or below curiosity, above does it tenacity? Matter, does it matter what we're hiring for? Because if I if I'm hiring an HR officer, I want empathy for sure, for sure. I love, I'm saying as a marker, it's not so much relative to your job description, but tell me which of these words best describes an entrepreneur to you. Rank these words sure. as markers for entrepreneurship. Right. What would you do? Where would you put intellect? And what? Uh, empathy, I like, intellect. I like curiosity, curiosity and tenacity, tenacity for sure. Intellect is a little less important, I think. I agree with you. I agree with you. I yeah, know that, a lot of smart people that don't do a very good job creating risk. That's like the the well, you, a lot of you rather common be, sense. Well, sometimes, yeah, yeah, fair point. It's like, would you rather be clever or smart? Because they're two different things. Yeah, you yeah. know, like I've always felt I was clever. I never had good grades. I mean, my nine year old, smart. My yeah. nine year old is wicked intelligent. Yeah, has zero common sense. I heard hmm. that's genetic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Which side of the family? Yeah. You, you may not have any supper tonight. <laughs> so, um, you know, Sandy, I I found that we have an interesting uh, similarity with our own entrepreneurship. Um, Tell me. So I, too, was adopted into a family that had a entrepreneurial background. Mm-hmm. My family, like yours, has been around Kansas City for a long time, had a well-known dairy for a while. But I also started my first enterprise with a red wagon. Really? I did. To shoe shine or was it? I did not. I sold golf balls. Attaboy. Did you find yeah. them in the creek and sell them? I did. My yeah. parents lived in Leewood South and there was a water hazard Perfect. nearby and Perfect. we would go walk around in the mud and like have the little, go- well, actually that's how we first started. Just find them in the yard, but we would uh, roll the wagon up sure. to the tee box. Uh, our problem was, it was related to compliance because the marshal would come by <laughs> And chase us off. <laughs> so at first we would carry the crates, but we actually like realized we could make a much faster retreat with the wagon. Gave you, it gave you a healthy, a healthy disregard for authority. They, sure well, well, then that was another thing. They tried to kick us off. And then, you know, my, my father was an attorney. He said, we'll just drag it up to the street. Cause yeah, it, there was a point where one hole went to the next and it went across a public street. It says the golf, the club doesn't own the street. They can't kick you off That's of the street. Advice. So I want to know, so, were, yeah. you, were you ever working on the ranch, on the farm, uh, uh, the dairy farm? No, the dairy was never a farm. It was more about the, uh, uh, you know, making milk, ice cream and oh, whatever. Got it, got so, it. you know, like, uh, uh, and that was the sixties the and we, you know, our, I think our parents and grandparents oh, were, sure. small, knew each other time. back, back in those times. Well, the reason and, I asked though, is that we're lucky to live on a ranch or a farm, as you say, here in, in uh, Kansas city, but we raise horses and sheep and, and cattle. 
and giving giving work ethic early on to I don't care how smart or clever or whatever, but just building that sense of responsibility, yeah. the work ethic that if I don't go out there and I feed, I don't feed that 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 bottle fed sheep his or her milk, it's going to die. Yeah. If I don't take care of my horse, it's going to have problems. So giving that life responsibility at an early age, every one of my kids, by the time they were um, four, had delivered uh, baby lambs. Oh, wow. And well, their hands were smaller than mine, so it was easier for them to kind of get in and manage things. <laughs> wow. I think that's something you should experience, Matt. I mean, I, I really have this problem with like my nine-year-old. I yeah. mean, the our kids these days are so addicted to electronics and stuff that, and he, he really lacks work ethic. He's lazy. And I think we had a whole generation of these people coming. My, my parents made sure they, I, nothing came easy. Like we were never given anything. We know, were always like, goofing. I mean, I was goofing off. I mean, I, I would have been, I don't, I, I depends on what your definition of lazy is. I was, my dad used to call me a drugstore cowboy. I'd go down there on my skateboard to Prairie Village and I'd skate around and try to look cool and, but he would consider that lazy. So when you say lazy and your kid's really into the games or into electronics, why why do you see that as lazy? Well, I mean lazy like I'm trying to get him to help me sweep up the garage this weekend and he's doing everything he can to somehow disappear and not help sweep up the garage. Like, you got to take the Huck Finn approach and sell him on why it's so fun to sweep. I found I found that money is a pretty good substitute for Huck Finn approach. Sure. Yeah, by the Meanwhile, way, I think, it was, my... I think it was Tom Sawyer, not Huck Finn. Oh, yeah, right. Meanwhile, my... But Tom, Huck, Tom but, was but, Huck bit. Huck, Huck, Tom, Huck, Tom was the one saying, yeah. "Hey, look at this!" And Huck, yeah. Huck was yeah. the, he was the man. He, he yeah. was the one that bit. So meanwhile, my my two year old, my four year old are helping. I never even asked them to. Interesting, you know. Hmm. No, but I, I think that that I, I agree with you in in the approach of of teaching that early. Um, I so it's hard, but it's hard to do in the in the context of where we live today. I mean, that's my point. Is, it, it, yeah. I mean, it was, I was, I was building dams in Brush Creek cause we didn't have little, uh, we had the place out we had the ranch where we'd go in the summertime. But like when I was in school, I'd escape down to Brush Creek and I'd build dams and I'd get the tadpoles and I'd create little, you know, villages for them and all that working with my hand and being outside. But how is that in, in many ways, it's not that different from being on a, on a game, right? We just didn't have the, yeah. you know, I'm sure there could but be like tadpole farm fill. Maybe, maybe, maybe he <laughs> yeah, is, exactly, maybe exactly he right. is working his ass off and we just haven't adjusted our yeah, expectation because, you know, yeah. it's, it's like the whole idea, you know, people talk about, Oh, I don't want my kid to have so much screen time. I'm like, when are they not going to be looking at a screen? Well, Cause I'm not a very good example on that one. So Matt, Matt has been great partner for us at YepKC, which is this program that's finding what we think are the best high school kids that have these entrepreneurial markers and bring in the companies like yours and C2FO, et cetera. Uh, one of the kids that we picked last year was making money playing video games for others, getting them to the next level. So he's always getting he's always getting grief from his parents for doing this. He came really good at the game, and, and then he began selling his services to play for you as if he were you to get uh, you. I would to be the commending my children on yeah, that. Yeah, the, the guy like, was making making it. huge jack doing yeah. it. The guys, yeah, yeah. And he, he was having a blast, right? Yeah. So in some ways, it's not yeah. that's, that's pretty entrepreneurial. Maybe that's where Junior's going. I don't know. You never know. I feel like my kids are going to have a high probability of owning their own startup by the time they're 10. Maybe they already do and you don't know about it. <laughs> Knowing my daughter, she might. She might be in on a couple different deals right now. My Maybe. nine-year-old had a YouTube channel and I didn't know it. Yeah, one of mine had a Finsta that I didn't know about. Yeah. A what? A Finsta, fake Instagram. Oh, wow. Okay. God. I'm wow, you just made me feel young. You just made Yoda no, feel young. No, man. That dude, was awesome. Thank no, you. that was me like... Okay, so I'm an I, I'm an old dad 
two years and four year old, and like I'm just I'm ter- you young man, I'm terrified, Sandy. I'm Dude, so terrified. Great. I wanted to name when I found out I was having a daughter. I I told my wife, I said, I want to name her Payback. And she was like, no way. And I was like, she's going to be my payback. She said, no. I said, can I get the middle name? She said, absolutely not. But yeah, um, I'm terrified. I I would have gone with that. I felt, and by the way, you know, Dylan, she's definitely, yeah, she's your clone. She went to it. What are you saying? No, but but, well, I have tenacity. So does she. Yeah. So, all right. Which of those words describes you? Are you, do you, are you curious? Are you tenacious? Uh, are you so empathetic? I, certainly I would put intellect down low. Um, probably. Were you uh, a good student? I'm fairly empathetic because when I was a little kid, I got picked on a lot. Okay. So, um, you know, back in those days, it was physical bullying versus sure. this virtual bullying, I think is actually worse because you can get all sorts of people ganging up in the worst ways. You know, for me, it was just like some big dude sticking me in my locker right. and locking me in there. You know, I had to knock to get out well, and all that stuff. Go back to intellect though. Like, but, why, why do you say that that's low? Because well, you, you're yeah. clearly a smart guy. Yeah, but I think, I don't know about that, but the, uh, the point I'm making is I think you can, for me, life experiences have always been that if I'm curious and I show um, things, things that I've done have been because I wanted to know how things worked, right? Whether it was, you know, building your first fort and trying to figure out the right angles of your tree house or whatever it was, always wanting to build, right? always wanted to do and create. Not because I was smart, but because I was curious, could I do this? What would it be like to have a fort or have a treehouse or build this tunnel? I remember I was trying to figure out a way to structurally support tunnels when I was like seven-year-old in my dad's backyard, just trashing his yard, digging down and finding trusses and the miracle thing didn't cave in and kill me. But wanting to know what it was like to be in that situation. So I always wanted to be in control of my environment. I was fairly curious. And, uh, you know, because I had a little bit of a, of a rough time in, uh, in, you know, elementary school and grade school to not tenacity, because you, if look, if you just, you get beat up enough, you got to be able to pick yourself up and go do stuff. So for me, curiosity, tenacity, empathy, um, intellect, probably in that order. Okay. I, I, I'll go with the intellect thing for me on the like bottom, like I was never a good student, but it wasn't that I, I don't think it was necessarily that I wasn't able to wrap my arms around the subject matter. I just have ADD. If I wasn't interested in it, I didn't yeah, care. Sure. So I, it was like A or F Yeah, for me. I mean, binary, it was binary for you. really like a yes or no thing. But if I was really into it, and that's back to that obsession thing. Yeah. And I think that that's actually, when we talk about the importance of how you raise your kids or you bring them up, like I would see all of me and, and the way that my daughter mm-hmm. acts. And, you know, I just got to find some stuff that, you know, if you can figure out how to get that lightning in a bottle, you can open it up later when you need it. So out of those things, out of those descriptors, what what are you going with, Matt? Because I feel like you're more of an intellect. But I think it's the, I think you're right, though. I think curiosity probably is number one. I think it's one of the most important things because be curious about what the problem is and how to solve it and mm-hmm. trying different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Which inherently breeds the, the a shitload of failure. In, in some sense, software development requires a lot of intelligence, but people also try and use too much intelligence to solve the problems. And sometimes the problems are relatively easy to mm. fix, but people overcomplicate them. Um, so I think it's really the curiosity and the tenacity that that probably equates really well for our software problems. I like that. And I, I would tell you that I think some of the very brightest uh, men and women in our company, considerably brighter from an IQ perspective than I am, actually can see too many ways why something won't work. 
So there's there's an optimal position of intellect where you can sort of have uh, a denying ability uh, to withhold that sense that things won't work because you can suspend your disbelief to go see if the experiment will work, whereas the really bright people can't suspend disbelief. They can just see too many ways that it won't work, and so they don't try it. There's, they, they become more risk-adverse than scared, too. They yeah. try and overcomplicate things to handle every scenario. Well, if you're super smart, you're used to being the dude in the room that everybody looks to. So you can't risk failure because you want to be seen right. as always the super smart guy. So I just want to make it work. Yeah. So you I got, think you I've, got always, I've, I've always looked at things very simplistically. like, And I actually think that helps deal with a lot of the BS Absolutely. that comes with stuff. And I actually get in a lot of trouble from a lot of people who are empathetic largely they're like well you're not seeing this i'm like you know this is higher up in the funnel mm-hmm. you know they're like not everything's black and white i'm like yeah but it really is at some point it really is it really is true or false yes or no yeah, zero or one yeah, yeah win or lose you know Tell you what, a lot, there's, there's a lot more ceos in this world that ought to have a black and white moral compass we're, we're yeah. missing that there's a lot of gray out there in this yeah. world so i'm glad you see things in that fashion well i mean you try but like i said that's not always a plus because that's not the most yeah. empathetic way to look at things um, yeah. so, if you've got curiosity, you'll, you'll cycle through it and you'll see, you'll see lots and lots of black and white and you'll just keep iterating. Yeah. Well, okay. So as we, you know, this time's kind of breezed by and thanks again for coming by. I think it would be great if you could give our listeners some, what are some of the, drop a little bit of wisdom oh, about dear. entrepreneurship. Like, well, like what's some advice you could give anyone? I know we just gave a whole lot of it, but there's a couple things that you would offer to those trying or yeah, just really trying. So why, as, as, as you think about starting your business or as you're thinking about just getting out and doing your own thing, always for me, it started with, and, and there are lots of people who look at building businesses opportunistically. I've always looked at building businesses, trying to solve for a problem, right? Not solving for an arbitrage, not finding a better way to do this, this mousetrap or otherwise, but actually trying to do something that hasn't been done before. If one can do it, the, the need is to find a problem first, something that you personally identify with. As we said, I don't care whether the market's big, small, or indifferent. You have to be passionate about it. It has to be a problem that gets you up in the morning. Then, then, Find a couple other people who feel the same way about the problem you do. Then build your product, right? And then maybe if you have to go get some capital, get some capital. But first, it's always problem, people, product, and giraffes. Giraffe is that first customer who's going to stick their neck out for you. <laughs> that's that's how we that's how we've built every business with it. I've I've never been smart enough to say I'm going to be the person who's going to go do this. I found a problem. I found I was lucky to find people that identified with that problem. We were able to build a product together, and we were able to sell it to that first giraffe or two. And inst- interestingly, and somewhat coincidentally, our first big customer at C2FO was Toys R Us. What's their mascot? It's giraffe. It's Jeffrey. It's Jeffrey. And the company didn't end up being successful, right? Toys R Us is no longer with us. But yeah, it was a problem, people, product, giraffe. Toys R Us still exists in the Philippines. It does in Japan. Big in Japan, too. So Matt, as we round out episode 100, uh, you know, and this was clearly unscripted, but I'd look back at, you know, that just gave me a lot of, that reminded me of Lara Holt when he was in, I'm looking back at like the history of all the shows and, you know, I look at a few things and I remember the cowardly approach, right? I think out of a hundred episodes later, and that was great input. One of the things that, do you know Lara Holt? I don't. He's the founder of Carstar. Oh, cool. 
Um, Local guy. But yeah. we had him in and, and we said, well, Lara, tell us a little bit about you. He goes, well, I'm really just a coward. I said, what? I said, wow. How are you a coward? He goes, yeah, I like to find something that no one else is doing. And I go somewhere where they'll leave me alone to get really good at it. And I said, well, tell me more. And he goes, well, when you're a coward, you don't take on Goliath. So it's like you're, you shouldn't be taking on Google and Amazon yeah, and, yeah. and the, the, the giants of the world, like be a coward, go do something. And, you know, it also reminded me of, of Watson, you're part of your input into my book, million dollar bedroom, which you were talking about how all the people you knew that had done really well, had all done something weird. You're like, oh, this guy imports feathers from Zaire or something like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And it's just always something, you know, like people make riches, money in the niches, riches oh, yeah. in the in niches. The niches. Yeah. So, you know, rather than a, you're not taking on the bank, you're taking a part of we're their we're, we're taking business on some, potentially we're, they don't want to do. Exactly. We're, we're, you know? we're sort of someone else's trash can be some your, your, yeah. your treasure. Right? Yeah. So what's something that you remember 100 episodes later that sticks out to you that was good advice? Oh, wow. I don't need, I have no idea. I don't even know where to start. I'm glad that you've learned a lot yeah. over these last hundred episodes. We continue to grow. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the the literal thing about being cowardly was definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, and that was his opening? Yeah. yeah. Like, so tell I mean, me about like, yourself. Like, oh, like, I'm a coward. Yeah. Well, like, actually, actually, we said, tell us a little bit about yourself. He said, well, I'm just a guy looking for something to do. A coward at heart. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? Perfect. Where are we going with this? And, uh, you know, I got to remember it. I, it really didn't even sink in. It took a few minutes because I've never heard of, you know, I think as you talk about curiosity or tenacity, yeah. where we like to look at ourselves as being brave and bold and ready to take on the world. And I'm like, hey, I want to be the biggest coward I can be. But I'll tell you what, that actually changed the way I think about so many things. It's a great way to phrase it. You start right? looking at it and I'm like, God, we need to be a lot more cowardly with this. You know, we're not, you know, and it's, I remember some guy that uh, gave a speech and wanted to hand me a, he comes up to me after he goes, Hey, I found a way I'm taking out Amazon and he's holding like something in his hand. I know he's going to slip me a business. And I said, I don't even want to hear about it. He goes, what do you mean? I said, cause you don't have a shot. Yeah. Well, you know, coming back full circle, what you said about Kansas city, this is actually a really good place to be cowardly yeah. in the sense that yeah. there's not a lot of turnover. Mm -hmm. Your people are staying with you. You can kind of quietly get out there and go build what it is you want and not have that full glare of Silicon Valley yeah. or, or, uh, what do they call it in New York? Uh, Silicon Alley. Not having, not having those folks just always picking at you saying, well, you know, I know that Sam just came from, you know, C2FO and here's what they were doing at C2FO. And let's, we don't have that in Kansas city. So for all of you out there, they're out, you know, want to, uh, want to come to this town. This is a great place to build a business. There, there's already, a, there's already a way to bring it back to the Prairie reference. There is a wagon train of companies that sure. seem to be lining up and heading this way. I feel like every other week or something, there's a new announcement about some company from somewhere left or right that yeah. has come in here with a couple hundred jobs and it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I'm really proud of Kansas city and what we've done. This is my hometown. I know it's your guys' hometown. It's where we're going to raise our kids. It feels like we are yeah. experiencing that generational yeah. shift now. And this is, this is a really great time to be in business yeah. and doing what we're doing in KC. Yeah. You got anything you want to say on the way out, Matt? You know, one thing that I learned a while back that I always remember, I didn't learn it from a podcast. I actually learned it from my um, interior designer. And so we would go shopping and she's like, oh, do you like this couch? Or do you like this piece of art or whatever? And I'd say, oh, yeah, I, I like it. And she would always look at me and she'd say, well, do you like it or do you love it? She says, you can find lots. We'll find lots of things in here and you like mm. that you like. But you need to find something you love. Mm -hmm. 
And that is one of the things that has always stuck with me. And I think about that when I hire somebody, anything, it's like, do I like it or do I love it? And that's just one of those things that always stuck with me. It's kind of like when I decided my, my hobby was going to be making money and I haven't worked a day since. There you go. Which makes it a little easier on that 5 a.m. shift. (laughs) Amen, brother. Well, Sandy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think this was a great episode for those of you listening. Don't be afraid to fail. Sandy, where can we check out more about you or your business? Sure, something's out there online. Yeah, C2FO. Is it C2FO.com? It is C2FO. Oh, that would make sense too, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thanks again for stopping by. I'll see you guys uh, in about another 100 episodes. Thank you so much. All right, Roger. That. If I'm alive, I'll be here. See ya. <laughs> thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle. <laughs>